The story is told of a man by the name of Mr. Swiller. He was known far and wide as a hard-nosed boss who watched his employees like a hawk. He was making one of his regular tours of the factory when he spotted a young man leaning against a pile of boxes just outside the foreman's office. And since George the foreman wasn't around, Swiller stood off to the side and watched to see just how long the young man would stand around doing nothing. So the young man yawned, he scratched his head, he looked at his watch, he yawned again, sat on the floor, took out a nail file, started cleaning the dirt under his nails. Yawned again, sat back up on a pile of boxes, and Swiller stepped from his hiding place, walked up to the young man and said, You, how much do you make a week? The young man looked at him and said, $250. said, Wait one second. He goes into the cashier's office, gets $250. He hands the young man the $250 and says, Here's the $250. Now get out of here. I never want to see you around here again. So he goes off looking for George, man. He is just irate. He finds George and he says to him, you know what, why don't you pay attention to what your employees are doing? I mean, is this the kind of supervision that I expect out of you? And he said, what are you talking about, sir? He says, that young man, the young man in the red shirt that was standing up against the office over there, uh, what's, what's going on there? He goes, well, he goes, you mean the, the young guy over there that was there? He goes, yeah. He goes, I gave him $250, I fired him, told him never to come back again. He goes, well, that was kind of interesting, sir, because that young man in the red shirt... He actually worked at the coffee shop around the corner and he was waiting for the $20 that we owe him. <laughs> kind of like, you know, kind of jumping to conclusions, you know. It's like, you know, this, and it illustrates once again the foolishness in making hasty decisions. You know, the danger of rushing to judgment without a thorough examination of the facts. You know, the story that was just told, $250 is a pretty cheap lesson, really, in the long run. Said, so, but the... Uh, those who have accused the Apostle Paul in our ongoing study through the book of Acts, those who accused him without examining the facts and examining the evidence, you know, the Bible says that there's an infinitely greater cost to his accusers for not checking into the facts and not accepting the evidence that was laid out before them. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me. We're going to do something that is unprecedented in the history of our meeting together. We're going to cover three chapters in one session. I hope you all brought a lunch. And your pajamas. So, Acts chapter 24. In this particular passage, we see Paul laying out what we'll call a ready defense towards his accusers. You know, the apostle Peter wrote in his writings, he said, you know what, we're to sanctify the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, always, giving, always being ready or prepared to give an answer or defense for the hope that is within us with gentleness and with reverence. And as we look at this, we see Paul exemplifying what it means to be a person who is ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. In chapter 24, we read these words starting with verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with a certain attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges to the governor against Paul. After Paul had, summoned, had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor... Since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But, I, but that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. For we have found this man a real pest, and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple. And then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. But Lysias, the commander, came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. And by examining him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so." After leaving Jerusalem under armed guard and being escorted to Caesarea, we're told that Paul was arraigned before Antonius Felix, who was the provincial governor at that time. And it was also at this time that Tertullus, who was a professional orator and an attorney, was hired by the elders and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and the Jews in that area to represent them and also to kind of 
give the charges that they were going to lay against him, and hopefully in such a manner that they would win some type of, uh, uh, some type of conviction on the Apostle Paul for what the charges would be. So he lays out three charges against Paul, to which Paul gives the first of three defenses that we'll see in these three consecutive chapters. We're going to examine each one of those. But before we examine his defense, the first thing that I want to do is to lay out the charges that are mentioned here, because it's to these charges that Paul will initially have to give an answer uh, for what's going on in his life. So as we look at the defense before Felix, the first thing that comes up is, if you'll notice in verses uh, 1 through 5, or 4, it actually goes into 5, but specifically 1 through 4, um, Tortolus obviously is kind of smooshed the governor. As you can see, he's calling him, you know, everything from the greatest thing that ever existed since sliced bread to whatever else he can come up with. You know, he's looking at him saying, well, you know what, You've, we've attained much peace under your jurisdiction. Uh, your providence reforms are being carried out for the nation. We acknowledge in every way and everywhere, oh, man, you're like the greatest thing that ever existed, which was a blatant lie because the guy was a dirtball. And everybody knew it. The guy just was just dirty. And everybody knew it. And, and the reason that they knew it was that the, the, the historians tell us that this man, this man uh, Felix, exercised, here's, what the, here's what, how history records him. He is a man who exercised royal power, power with the mind of a slave. He was the first slave in the history of the Roman Empire to ever hold such a lofty position. And the way that it happened was through friendships, it was through manipulation, it was through lies, it was through deceit. The guy was dirty, and everybody knew it. Everyone knew how he got his position. There was nothing good in this guy whatsoever, and we'll see it as we go through this. And yet at the same time, he's going to schmooze him nonetheless to try to get favor with him or get him on his side because he knows that this is a guy that if you can get him on his side, this guy will pervert justice in a second for his own cause. So it's kind of like, you know, you run around in the back room, you generate people that, you know, you can get on your side, and you pervert justice in the process because you don't care about justice. And so he was hoping, man, you know, I'm going to build this guy up so that I can get him on my team, and then what we'll do is no matter what the evidence is, he's going to convict Paul, and we're going to get what we're looking for. And that's exactly what was happening here. So it was through all of this that he, that he was schmoozing him. And now he lays out three charges, which are real important for us to understand the seriousness of these accusations. Number one, he said, you know what? We found this guy to be a troublemaker. He's a troublemaker. In verse 5, he's a real pest, actually. And a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, everywhere this guy goes, there's trouble. He just stirs it up. And that was a, it had political overtures because the Roman government would not put up with anybody who was a troublemaker. If you stirred up trouble or you caused riots, anyone who did that, that, that cause was worthy of death. So the first thing he's trying to do is get the Roman government on his side saying, hey, man, this guy is a, he's, he's a troublemaker who instigates riots everywhere he goes. And so as a result, this man is worthy of death if you find him guilty. Now, the second thing he said was he accused him of leading a new sect or religion. He calls it the Nazarenes. He's the, the, he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes in verse 5. This also was troublesome because the Roman government permitted Judaism and accepted it as a religion but would not accept or tolerate anyone trying to start anything new. It was like, Judaism, we accept, but a new sect, the Nazarene sect, a ringleader too. You know, every one of the words that are used are inflammatory. He's a ringleader. He's a troublemaker. He's a pest. He stirs up dissension. He causes riots. He's, they're trying to paint a picture of Paul so that immediately the guy's thinking, man, this guy's really, you know, he's guilty. The third thing that they said was, oh, he also desecrated the temple, which is another grounds for, for uh, execution because the, the Roman government permitted the Jews to execute. In fact, in the temple itself, there was a sign beyond the courtyard that said any Gentile that goes beyond this point is worthy of death and you bring your own death upon yourself. And the Roman government permitted that so that it did not desecrate the temple of the Jews. So if you went beyond that, you were worthy of death. And if you instigated that, you are also an accomplice of that. You're worthy of death as well. Now, if you remember when the first all took place, they saw Trophimus, who was also with him from Ephesus, and the, and the Thessalonian that was there as well, kind of exhibit A and B, so to speak, that had to do with those who had come to faith in Christ through Paul's preaching, brought him with them to Jerusalem to see what God was doing in, in the lives of Gentiles, and they assumed that because Paul was in the temple, that these men, these Gentiles, were in the temple with him. 
And that wasn't accurate, but we're going to see that in a second. But all of these things are worthy of death. Now, to these charges, Paul gives a very specific and a ready defense, starting with verse 10. Notice what he says. It says, when the governor had nodded for him to speak, this was Paul's response. He says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. How about that? Isn't that great? Now, notice the difference. The other guy, his, 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 um, his introduction or his schmoozing was longer than the accusation. Now, Paul wants to show respect for the office, and rightfully so, but at the same time, he's not going to schmooze this guy because he knows how dirty he is. He's not going to lie or be deceptive. He just said, and knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully give my defense. <laughs> That's great. I love that. He says, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Nor, they, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. You notice what he says. As to the first charge, as far as being a troublemaker and a rioter, he said, hey, look, it's public knowledge. I've only been in town 12 days. That's hardly enough time to gather together enough people to cause a riot or, to, or start any kind of trouble. And, in fact, there's no evidence of that whatsoever. You can go around and ask anybody. There hasn't been a riot in Jerusalem since I've been back, and that's not true. That, that, this charge is bogus. Now, also, but we have to realize and understand something is, you know, the troublemaking charge we have to look at in its detail because, you know what, frankly, everywhere that Paul went there was trouble. I mean, we know that. We see that. We've seen it through the history of everything that we've read. Everywhere that he's gone, he's caused trouble. And you know what the trouble was always the result of? Preaching and teaching, proclamation of the Word of God. He taught truth. And when you teach truth, you're going to stir stuff up. That's just the way it is. And you're going to be accused of being a troublemaker. You're going to be accused of being a person who incites a division or dissension or causes riots or whatever it is. And I know for a fact from ministry, regardless of where it takes place, anywhere that I go and I open up the Bible and I preach from the Word of God, you know what? There are people there that say, this guy causes trouble. He stirs it up. He is a person of dissension. He's trying to divide our team, for example. He's trying to <clears throat> divide our clubhouse. He's trying to divide guys into two groups. Hey, you know what? <clears throat> Everywhere that I go, there's two groups of people. Those who are seeking God and seeking truth and wanting to do what's right before God and those who are in rebellion and walking the other way. There's only two people that I've ever come across in my lifetime. One is heading toward God. The other is going away from Him. You can see that no matter where you go. You'll see it on teams. You'll see it on, in your workplace. You'll see it with your families. You'll see it in your neighborhoods. You'll see it everywhere that you look. If you objectively look, you will notice you're either walking towards God, seeking Him, walking with Him in obedience with Him, or you're in rebellion against Him saying, I don't want anything to do with it. Come and follow me. Every place I've ever been, that's all I've ever seen is two groups of people. When guys come up through a minor league system, they come to a major league baseball team, the first thing that you look at is, okay, they're looking for acceptance and a direction to go, and it depends on who reaches out to them first as to what direction they'll at least start to go to begin with. I try to get that across to people all the time. Listen, we have to be aggressive in reaching people for the kingdom of God. We have to reach out to people and invite them to see and to taste that God's good, that His grace is excellent and wonderful, and it's open to anyone regardless of what our background is. We've got to be more aggressive in reaching people with the gospel because the enemy is just as aggressive and unfortunately more aggressive in leading them away from God into destruction. We've got to recognize that Paul was a troublemaker. But you know what? Here's the bottom line of it. This guy, you talk about arrogance. This attorney representing these people who would stand up and say, you know, we find this guy to be a real pest. Here's what i got to say to him. Who cares what you think? Seriously. Who cares if you find Paul to be a troublemaker? Bleh. Because the only thing that matters is, what does God think of Paul? We need to live to please an audience of one and stop whining and moaning because people in our life think we're troublesome. If you love people, you're going to trouble them with the truth of God's word. Because only God can set people free from their sin. And we're going to look at that in greater detail. I don't think Paul cared much what other people thought of him. Because all he cared about was hearing from his Savior, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 
We are so worried about what people think that we are not very effective for the kingdom of God. He said, as to the charge, though, of causing a riot in Jerusalem, well, thank God, praise God, I wasn't here long enough because you probably would have been right. <laughs> but, you know, he didn't go there with it. It was like, no, you know, I've only been here 12 days, and it didn't happen here. Woo-hoo! <laughs> you know, but, you know, I'm here any longer than you're going to. Why? Because the word of God, man, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intention of the heart, separate bone from marrow, man. The word of God separates people. It calls them to, to make a choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. Which direction are you going to go? Are you for God or are you continuing to be against them? Those are the only two options. So he didn't really care too much about what people thought. And I think we all need to develop a little more of that when it comes to just being measured by God and his word. Second thing is, he said, ask the Nazarene sect. Oh, let me explain that to you. Because he goes, and when it was, uh, he goes on and he's talking about, he says, but this I do admit, I mean, the second charge, you're going to talk about a Nazarene sect or whatever you're going to call it. He says, but this I admit to you that according to the way, remember, that was a name that was given to early Christians because it was a name that was reflective of what Jesus himself said when he was answering the question of Philip. Philip said, hey, show us the Father, you know, and then, you know, he goes, well, hey, well, wait a minute, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and I am the way to him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes in the Father but through me. So the word caught on, or the phrase, the way, as far as a specific way. And you know what? God's way is a very specific way. We'll talk more about that in a second. It's not nebulous. It's not vague. It's not confusing in any way. God's way is very specific. Jesus said, enter by the narrow way for few who enter into it as opposed to the broad way in which many are traveling that leads to destruction. God's plan for man is very narrow. But he tells us what it is and praise God for that. So he says, as far as that's concerned, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that's written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless, clear conscience, good conscience, we talked about last time, uh, before both God and before man. So he gives an answer. Now, the answer is important because he was saying basically this. No way is this some new sect or new religion. And in fact, this is a culmination of everything that our people have believed throughout generations. It is a fulfillment of the very prophets that God has given us, the very word of God. And if you remember, early, in early Christianity, the church in Jerusalem was predominantly Jewish people who had come to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so this way was basically an offshoot the Roman government looked at as an offshoot of Judaism because all those who were associated with Judaism were now associated with Christianity, what we call Christianity today. They called the way then. And basically you're saying, that, you know what, there's no, there's, there's no merit to this charge either. I'm not starting anything new. I mean, this is something that our fathers have looked forward to, the day of God's promises. It's something the Word of God has talked, told us for centuries, and we've always looked forward to what God was going to do. I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead, and you know what? And Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, and yet the Bible, or the Old Testament at that time, clearly taught about resurrection. There'll be a resurrection one day of everyone, the righteous and the wicked, and they'll all appear before God and have to give an account for their life. And so, you know, there's nothing, there's no truth to that either. Then he goes on to talk about desecrating the temple. And if you remember from our study together, he says after several years, talking about three years that he was in Ephesus, he said, you know, I came back to Jerusalem after several years. I brought alms to my nation to present offerings from the churches of the Gentiles to help the church out here. Says, uh, he goes, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. There was no riot going on. He goes, there, but there were certain Jews from Asia. Now he throws in, hey, you know what? There are people from out of town that came in and started all this. He goes, in which they found me in there, and they came, who ought to have been present before you. Those people who brought all the charges, they're not even here, are they? Well, that's kind of strange, because every, every person accused of a crime had the right to confront those who accused them. Interesting. It says, who brought, and it says, and, or else let these men themselves tell you what misdeed they found when I stood before the council. It says, other than for this one statement, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead I'm on trial today. But Felix, having a more excellent... And, and so, all of a sudden, his defense stops at this point. 
And what he's saying is here, he's saying, you know what? I was in the temple. I wasn't desecrating the temple. I was there to present offerings. And if you remember, the Jews had asked him to present offerings for four men to show them that, you know, to show everybody in Jerusalem that Paul wasn't advocating everything he had, that he had grown up to love and appreciate about the law of God, that he was there. He offered offerings for these four men. There was no riot. There was no trouble. And these guys came, stirred it up, and then they started this, this path that now we see him on. So he answers all of this, basically saying is, you know what, there's no merit to the charges, they're, they're, they're bogus, and after, the, after his defense, then Governor Felix heard enough. It says, but Felix, in verse 22, having a more exact knowledge about the way, which is interesting because he knew exactly what Paul was saying was true. His wife, as we'll see, was a woman who was a Jewish, had, had grown up in a Jewish family, was familiar with what had happened, was familiar with the way, and I'm sure that he had more information because the Bible tells us he had a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I'll decide your case when he gets here. He gave orders to the centurion for him to be kept in custody, yet some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. So Felix is in an awkward position because he knows if he lets Paul go and says, you know what, this guy hasn't done anything wrong, you know, this is crazy. On the other hand, we're going to see a little bit more about Felix's character exposed in a second. So he said basically, you know what, I'll keep him under arrest. It's going to be kind of a, a loose arrest, a house arrest, so to speak. His friends can come, and if he needs anything, they can bring it to him, and they can visit him, and you know what? I mean, it's just kind of a loose, casual, kind of semi-arrest, as it were. But he's still in custody. So some days later, and here's what I want to focus on in this particular chapter. Some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present time, and when I find you, I will summon you. So Felix and Drizello are gone on a trip. They come back, and I'm sure in the, in the process of their time together, they were discussing Paul, what the situation was, and they were curious about what this man would have to say. They heard his reputation. He had been all over the world preaching the message. You know, they wanted to hear what the message was. And what a great opportunity for them to be able to sit one-on-one -on -one with a guy that, you know, basically people wouldn't have had access to in such an intimate setting. And this fateful interview takes place between these, these three people, Paul and, and Felix and Drizella. Now, as I mentioned, Drizella was a Jewish and as a, as a result had a much better understanding of the Old Testament uh, than her husband Felix. Uh, but we need to understand a little bit about her and her husband to get a good feel for what is about to happen in this, this interview. Drusella got married when she was about 15 years old. She was married to a guy who was a king of a small kingdom in Syria. After a couple of years, she kind of got bored with him. She started to have an affair with Felix, and over a period of time, she ends up divorcing her husband and marrying Felix. As I mentioned, Felix was about as dirty of, of a leader as you'll ever find in any government situation from the standpoint that he was open to distort judgment. He was open to take bribes. He had the mind of a slave and the power of a king. And so he didn't know how to handle himself. He didn't know how to conduct himself, and he used it for his own personal benefit. Now... Felix was her second husband, and Drusilla was Felix's third wife. So this is kind of a background there. They're two very ambitious people, but very lost people as well. Now, from Paul's encounter with these two people, we can learn much about what should occur when we are to give a ready defense for the hope that is within us. Number one, Paul proclaimed God's message in a bold and straightforward manner. Notice that. He was talking to them about faith in Christ Jesus and then began to discuss righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Now, this boldness and this straightforwardness was probably not a message these two were ready to hear. They probably thought they were going to hear something about, oh, the resurrection or some arcane point of rabbinic theology or something about Paul's background or, you know, more importantly, you know, they wanted to have time with him so maybe they could cut a deal and let Paul go. But the bottom line of all it was they weren't ready to hear this. Paul quickly left preaching and started meddling. We had a, a couple... We had a couple in one of our Bible studies who were from the south, and it was a time when we were meeting with the ramps, so we had people from all over the country. 
And, uh, and uh, so I was teaching from a certain passage, and, man, you know, it was one of those passages that it really, you know, it's like, oh, man, you, you could just feel the conviction in the room. I mean, have you ever been in a room where you just see people, like, start to sweat? I mean, this, this one guy, man, I mean, he was sweating, brother. I mean, he had sweat pouring down his head. It was like he was, it's like he was looking for a fire extinguisher, you know? And, uh, and uh, he goes, man, you know, you were doing so good when you were preaching, but when you start meddling, man, it got a little uncomfortable. You know, it's kind of like when you go from preaching to meddling. Preaching is for everybody else you think should have been there to hear it. You know, you've ever been there and said that? It's like, oh, man, I wish so-and-so would have been here this morning. He could have learned so much. I could have just got him right where he was. You know, that's preaching. Everybody loves preaching. Bring your friends. Let them hear. But what meddling is, ooh, ooh, I'm starting to get a little close to home here. Now you're starting to meddle. You're starting to talk about my life. And those are the people who come to me and say, did my wife call you this week? Now, why was that? Oh, never mind. <laughs> you know? And you know, it's kind of one of those deals. It's like, hey, you go from preaching to meddling. Paul went from preaching to meddling real quick. Hugh Latimer, I love this story, was an English reformer, and he often preached before Henry VIII. One occasion, he offended the king with his boldness in the passage that he had, uh, that he had taught on. He was commanded to preach the following weekend and make an apology. On the next Sunday, after reading the text, he addressed himself as he began to speak. He began to speak by talking to himself. And this is what he said. I'm going to try to bring it up to uh, get the old English out of here and, and, and make it more current. He said, Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you're speaking to this day? To the high and the mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty. Now, he's saying this out loud. Who can take away your life if you offend him? Therefore, you better be careful what you say so that no word that you say will displease him. And then he said, but, but Hugh, you need to consider well, do you not know from where you've come and upon whose message you've been sent, sent to share? Even by the great and mighty God who is all present and who beholds all things and is able to cast your soul in hell. Therefore, take care that you deliver his message faithfully. So he's like, hey, you may not like what I have to say. Or as, what was it Danny said about me? Hey, you know, he preaches like a guy that doesn't want to be invited back. I like, you know, I like that. I think, I don't know. But it's like, you go, hey, you know, he was basically saying, yeah, Henry VIII, you could kill me. But you know what? But God can send me to hell. Jesus said the same thing. What do you fear man for? All man can do is kill you. You better fear God who can kill both, send both body and soul into hell forever. It's like if you're going to have a fear of anybody, you better fear God. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So guess what he did? He preached the same sermon he preached the week before that offended him, even with more passion than he had the week before. <laughs> is that great? I love that. We all need to have that kind of boldness and straightforwardness. Notice that he began to discuss with them, and I like this, he discussed this with them. And, and in the Greek, the, the, uh, the definite article, the, is actually in front of faith in Christ Jesus. But he began to discuss with him the faith, the one and only faith, the only Savior of the world, the faith in Christ Jesus. He began to discuss it with them. And look at this three-point outline that he basically shared with them. He shared with them, first of all, he started to talk to them and discuss with them yesterday's sin. Yesterday's sins. They had to do something about yesterday's sins, and he used it by sharing the word righteousness. Let me tell you something about this three-point sermon. It would not be considered politically correct today. Because, in fact, today the word sin has gradually dropped out of our vocabulary. Not only the word, but also the notion of it. We talk about mistakes and weaknesses inherited deficiencies or tendencies. We talk about faults and even errors, but we don't face up to the fact that we are sinners. People are no longer sinful. They are immature, underprivileged. They have a disease, they have an illness. People misspeak or get ahead of themselves, they don't lie anymore. People commit acts of sexual indiscretion, Adultery is an affair. Homosexuality is a gay lifestyle. 
loving each other is now what we call fornication. But a holy God demands righteousness. And the problem is none of us are righteous. No, not one. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as he spoke with Felix and Drizella, he began to talk about yesterday's sins. He began to talk maybe about Drizella and her past, about her great-grandfather who tried to kill Jesus in Bethlehem and instead slaughtered thousands of innocent children. Or maybe her great-uncle who killed John the Baptist because John the Baptist confronted her great-uncle about his illicit relationship with his person he called his wife, but was really his mistress, and he was beheaded for it. Maybe he even talked about her father, got even a little more personal, who the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 12 was responsible for the killing of the apostle James in Jerusalem. As a Herod, Drusella was very familiar with sin. Felix was corrupt. Perhaps he began discussing some of Felix's past sins. And as he did this, that was obvious bad news for this couple. And you know what? And it's bad news for everybody. Because there's a person in this room, a person hearing my voice, who can with a clear conscience before God say that they've never sinned and violated God's holy standard. We're born into the world sinners. That's why it's so natural that we do what we do that's in rebellion against God. We have a sin defect, a birth defect, a congenital birth defect that's called sin nature. And as a result, we do what comes naturally for sinners. We sin. We violate God's holiness and His righteousness. He was discussing this with them. Could you imagine the audacity to point out another person's sin? that separates them from God for all eternity. Yet the good news is that God, this same holy God, provides His own righteousness to those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. The righteousness of Christ is put on our account to those who believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, that He rose again three days later. And the righteousness of Christ is put on the account of all of us who trust in Him for the forgiveness of our sin. For there's none righteous, no, not one, and nothing that we can ever do. All our works of righteousness are considered filthy rags to God who has given us His Son as the remedy for the problem of sin in our life. It's by God's grace that we're saved through faith in Christ and in Him alone and not based on our works so that none of us can ever brag or boast. And this is what he was discussing with Felix and Drusilla. Paul then moved to today's temptations, which brings up the idea of self-control. It's been said that man can control just about everything but himself. Exhibit A, Felix and Drizella. Though she grew up in a family that understood the laws of God, she lived as if Moses never received the Ten Commandments from him. She obviously wasn't living according to what she knew God's standard was because she never would have committed adultery to begin with because she knew she was worthy of death by committing that act. So it's obvious that she turned her back on the God of her people, the one true God. Exhibit A, hey, look, you know what? You don't want to hear anything about self-control because you've never exercised or demonstrated either one of you at any time in your life. Today's temptations. You've been married twice. You dumped your first husband because you're having an affair with the guy that you're married to now. You've been married three times. I mean, yeah, you, you both like messed up. But he was discussing it with them. Do you have any questions so far? <laughs> I was like, uh, you know, Felix, he was a leader, political leader. Man, he lied, cheat, steal, and kill people. His sin nature will be revealed, not only in what he's done yesterday and what he's doing today, but it's also going to be revealed to us in what he does tomorrow about what he hears. Now, the clincher is tomorrow's judgment. This has got to be the clincher. He's saying to them, listen, because you're a sinner, 
And we've demonstrated by the sins of your past, the sins of your present. And you know what? Now I'm going to tell you about the judgment that's come. You've got to do something about the judgment that's to come. You better be prepared for that judgment. Perhaps Paul told Felix and Drizella the same thing he told the Greek philosophers that we studied in Acts chapter 17 when he said this, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is either your savior or your judge, one or the other, period. Who is he to you? Is he your savior or ultimately your judge? See, the reason that he will be judge is because God appointed to him of all humanity because of the sacrifice that he made on our behalf on the cross. The Bible says that Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. He will judge every person. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. You receive him now or reject him. He is your savior now or he will be your judge later. Solomon concluded everything in life this way by saying this. You know what? When I look back on my life in Ecclesiastes 12, you can find it. He says, when I look back over life, here's my conclusion for everybody. Fear God. Fear God. Because if you fear God, it's the beginning of all wisdom. Number two, obey his commandments. Because if you love God, Jesus said, if you love me, you obey my commandments. It's a sign of really a change in our heart. And the third thing he said is this. And don't ever forget that one day you and me individually will give an account to the Lord Jesus Christ for our lives. Believers to be rewarded for faithfulness. Those who reject him, to be sent from his presence for all of eternity in a place the Bible calls the lake of fire that we refer to as hell, where there will be weeping and mourning and gnashing of teeth and an ending torment in a place of darkness and removal from the very presence of God himself. Those are the only two choices. And I'm sure that he pointed out that God would not only judge their outward actions, but he judged their heart as well. Because God sees our hearts as well as that which we do. Wanting to win their souls to the Savior, who alone could save them, Paul did not soft-sell or soft-pedal the truth of God's message. Folks, let me tell you something. If we love people, we're going to share with them the reality of sin, the reality of self-control that we don't have, because self-control is evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. Love, peace, patience, joy, gentleness, self-control. We will warn them of the judgment to come. And I know that is not a message people want to hear. But let me tell you this. No one can ever be saved from God's judgment unless they realize how lost they truly are. Because you're not seeking a Savior if you don't think you've offended the Savior himself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is very clear. It is to expose sin so that we can see the remedy which is the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world. Anything less than that is not a saving gospel, and it is deceptive, it is a lie, and it will never save anyone if you don't expose sin first to lead him to the Savior. Paul knew that. He understood that. And you know what? How did Felix respond to it? Notice what it says. He became terrified. He was terrified. He was so convicted of his sin that he was terrified of the judgment that was to come. Drizella, we don't know how she responded. But you know what he said as he came to that crossroad of his life? The point that he had to either receive Christ as a Savior, confess his sin and repent and turn from God, turn to, to, from sin to God? You know what he did at that moment, that crossroad the road, that critical moment in time when he was terrified and convicted for sin? Notice what he said. Just get away from me. Go away from, the, go away from the present, and when I find you, I will summon you. Just get, get away from me. I'll talk to you later about this. I'm not ready to respond to this. I don't want to deal with this. Get out of my sight. Even your sight is convicting of my sin. The sight of a believer and a group of non-believers is convicting of sin. It better be. 
because it means that we're not doing the same thing they're doing. Don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind that you know what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. We better not be blending in doing the same things, but if we're there in their midst, man, we're a light and darkness. The very sight of us, just get out of my sight. Don't ever feel bad about being rejected by people who look at you as convicting of their lifestyle. Praise God, they can see a difference. Stop whining and feeling sorry for ourselves. Get out of my sight is what he said. Now notice this. I'll talk to you later about this. And at the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given by Paul. Therefore, he also used to spend sin for him quite often and converse with him. For two years, he sent for Paul to come to him. And for two years, Paul explained to him the truth. And for two years, he didn't respond to it. Because all he wanted to do was get a bribe from Paul so that he could let him go. This guy was so corrupt and filthy that even when he was convicted of his sin, once he got over that, he went right back to being who he was. More in a minute. Because I don't know how we're going to do this. But watch this. So he moves on his defense before Festus. So move on to phase two. Festus arrives in verse 1 of chapter 25. He takes over for Felix. Chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem at the same time, setting an ambush to kill him on the way. It's like, hey, you know what? We need to send him back, but we're going to kill him because there's no way these charges are going to stand up. We we hate this guy. So we're just going to set up an ambush. We'll kill him and everybody we have. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, that he himself was about to leave shortly. It says, therefore, let their influential men among you go there with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea on the next day, took a seat on the tribunal, ordered Paul to be brought. After he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood before him, bringing many and serious charges, the same ones we just went over. Paul said in his own defense, I've committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, here we go, something stood out as I was reading through that, Festus wants to do him a favor. I mean, these guys, I mean, it's like, were there anybody committed to do what's right? Felix held Paul in prison for two years trying to bribe, bribe from him to the point where his term ran out and now Festus takes over. Festus goes, man, this guy hasn't done anything wrong, but you know what? I'm a politician and so to do the Jews a favor, I guess I'll keep him arrested and we'll try to figure out what goes on and the process continues. Festus, wishing to do them a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? And Paul wisely says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. If then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I don't refuse to die. If none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. I love that. I appeal to Caesar. That was the end of his defense before Festus. He says, look, I am not going back to Jerusalem. What do you think, I'm crazy? Those people are going to kill me on the way. I mean, they don't want any justice to be served. I want to go to Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he goes to Caesar. Not only does this save his life, but Paul would get, it would get Paul before the very emperor himself to discuss with him the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? He didn't like to be falsely accused. None of us like to be falsely accused. Listen to this story. Early morning hours, October 4th, 1980. Young nursing student was brutally murdered in the Chicago suburb of Oak Park. Following the advice of well-meaning friends, Steve Linscott, a student at Emmaus Bible College, told police about a dream he had the night of the crime. Oak Park police later arrested him, interpreting his dream as the roundabout confession of a psychopathic killer. Later, a jury found Linscott guilty. He was sentenced to 40 years in prison. But there was just one problem. He was innocent. Only after time in prison and numerous legal appeals, a process that lasted 12 years, was Linscott finally freed and vindicated of all charges. Could you imagine during those 12 years wondering what in the world was going on? Here's a kid who was a Bible student at a Bible college looking to serve the Lord with his life. He gets arrested, tried, convicted, thrown in prison, sentenced to 40 years. He knows he hasn't done a thing wrong. What is going on? Here's what he writes later about the experience. I have come to realize that we cannot cannot judge God's purposes, nor where he places us, 
nor why he chooses one path for our lives as opposed to another. The Bible itself is replete with accounts of divine action or what seems to be inaction that doesn't seem fair, that doesn't make sense except when viewed in light of God's perfect plan. Thousands of Egyptian children were massacred while a baby named Moses was spared. Jacob was a liar and a thief, and yet it was he, not his faithful brother Esau, who received the blessing of their father Isaac and of God. On one level, it makes no sense that God would allow his son to die for the sins of humankind, but God has a plan, a perfect plan. How many of us can say the same thing? He came to that conclusion and earned the right to be heard by living for 12 years in prison, convicted of a crime that he never committed. But you know what he came away with it is? Not bitterness, not anger, but as an opportunity to see God's hand at work. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And despite what others may do, and despite how things seem so unfair or unjust, God is still in control. The Apostle Paul saw every adversity as an opportunity to be used by God to reach people for the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of us sit around feeling sorry for ourselves rather than using the opportunity that God is giving us through adversity to be faithful in our witness to others? How about Joseph in Potiphar's prison? One man writes, Do you ever wonder if Joseph counted the passing days with slash marks on the wall of his prison cell? Do you ever think he gave up worrying about how long he had been there or how long that he'd be there? Do you think he gave up hoping the cupbearer would keep his promise? Joseph knew his interpretation of the dream had been correct. He knew that every day the cupbearer stood in a position of power and influence. Maybe one day that man would remember his promise. But then again, maybe he wouldn't. How long can a person cling to a dusty promise? Hey, you know what? God's promises aren't dusty promises. God's promises are, are, are etched into marble. God's promises are given to us in his word for all of eternity. The word of God will last forever. God's promises aren't dusty promises. God's promises are etched for all eternity. What God says he'll do, he'll do. What God says he'll bring to fruition, he'll bring to fruition. If God says that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes, then all things will work together for good. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, fix them on him, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Stop taking our eyes off Jesus in the midst of our adversity and look at him and see him. As the song goes, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what Paul did. And you know what? It was going to get him an audience before Agrippa II. And that's the last offense that we see in these passages. Because this time, before King Agrippa II, the son of Agrippa I, James's executioner, the great-grandson of Herod the Great, and Bernice was his sister with whom he was living with incestuously. Boy, this is another audience that's going to be fun to see what he does with this. And as we look at this, if you look starting with verse 13, it says, Several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea. They paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid out Paul's case before the king. And he explained everything that we've just studied, that, hey, Felix, I took over, you know, and I'm dealing, dealing with this guy that, man, you know what, he's not guilty of anything, and he probably wouldn't want to set free if he hadn't appealed his case to, to Caesar. And, and, you know, so he's kind of explaining, he's talking to him in verse 19, saying that the only points of disagreement with him and that, that is about their religion and about a certain dead man, Jesus, whom Paul continues to assert to be alive. The focal point of Paul's message continually was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, it, it troubles me that the Christian church basically spends time, one time a year for the most part, talking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The central theme of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive. Why should we worry about judgment before Jesus Christ, someone who was killed on the cross, because he ain't dead no more. He's alive. That's why we need to fear judgment before him. He is alive. And he he will judge every human being. He is alive. 
That was the central theme of Paul's message, the resurrection. You can never get tired of talking about the resurrection. And it is amazing to me how many churches are now doing everything and anything on Easter Sunday but opening the Word of God and preaching about the resurrection. That never gets old. It can never be old. It is the foundation of everything we believe. Paul said to the Corinthians, if it wasn't for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are all miserable and lost in our sins and we have no hope. But because he is alive and can extend to you and me forgiveness through trusting in him, his death on the cross, the power of his resurrection, because we believe in him and he's alive, that he can give us eternal life. He can forgive us as he claims to. What's harder to do? Say, you're forgiven, or pick up your pallet and walk. What's harder to do? Say, hey, I forgive your sins, or coming back to life from the dead. Duh. And he said that's the whole problem was, the guy just was too convinced that Jesus was alive. And now he's going to explain it. He goes, at a loss for how to investigate these things, he explains everything. The tribunal, the council, Felix, Festus, I don't know. He goes, maybe now you can hear what he has to say and he can pass judgment to him. So this is what happens. Amidst amidst much pomp and circumstance. Can you imagine this? It's huge. Here comes this little, you know, little, little guy in chains before this big, big pomp and majesty of the king coming in and the procession and all the people with him. And here he is standing before him, just this little guy in chains. And you know what? And the little guy in chains was more free than anybody else in the room. Isn't that great? And this is what he has to say. He gives his defense before Agrippa. Now, the important thing to look at as we look at his defense is how many people in here have ever given their what we call testimony to another person? How many of you have ever shared what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in your life. Please, put your hands up boldly. And you look around and go, okay, very good, nice. Because that is our responsibility. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the outermost parts of the earth. It's not an option. Every person should be in a position to give this, uh, concisely, uh, distinctly, their testimony of how they came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul does. So first of all, he starts out by talking about what his life was before Christ. And so he goes to them and, and begins to talk about them. And notice what he says. He goes in verse 3, talking to Agrippa, especially you're an expert of all customs, questions among the Jews. I beg you to listen to me patiently. He said, please, don't, don't render any judgment until you let me finish what I'm saying. At least let me get to the end. Here's what he says. All the Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing on trial for the hope and the promise made to God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Why is that? Well, you know God can do it. We believe it. And, and, And so why is this so incredible for you? So then I thought to myself that I had to do things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Notice what he's saying. He goes, everybody in this room knows that I was a Jew of Jews, man, Pharisee of Pharisees. I hated Christians. I couldn't stand the sight of them. He says, and this is just what I did. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were putting, being put to death, I cast my vote against them. If you remember when Stephen, the first martyr, was killed, they, Saul of Tarsus said, hey, let me hold your coat so you can get a good shot at him with the rocks you're dropping. And he was, the Bible says, in hearty approval of his murder. And so what he's laying out is saying, listen, you know what? You've got to listen to me. Aren't you at least a little curious as to what happened to me from the time that you knew I hated Christians and put them to death till the time now where I stand before you as one of the greatest advocates for the Lord Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead? Aren't you a little curious? I mean, when you know people in your past... And you look at them and, and, and you talk to them and say, aren't you a little curious that, you know what? Man, I used to run around and do all the same things that you did. Man, I used to drink, I used to smoke dope, I used to do this, that, and the other thing. You know, I had sex outside of marriage. I mean, you know what? I was doing the same thing that you're doing. Aren't you a little bit curious as to what has happened in my life? A little bit? A little curious? And that's what he's saying. Aren't you curious as to what has happened? One of the greatest arguments for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what happened to this guy named Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road as he was going to persecute and put to death Christians. What happened to a guy who hated Christians to being the greatest advocate for the cause of Christ in the history of the church? Something dramatic happened, and that's what he said. So that's what I used to do. 
I punished them often in synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme or, or to reject what they said they believe. I was furiously enraged at them. I pursued them from city to city. And then when I was engaged as I was journeying to Damascus with the authorities and commissions of the chief priests, at midday, O king, here we go. He's going from, okay, that was my life before. This is how I came to faith in the resurrected Savior. At midday, I saw... On the way, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me. And those who were journeying with me, when we had heard, we had all fallen to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet for this purpose I have appeared to you. To appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead, appeared to this man by the name of Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road. And his life was never the same again. He saw him. Like Job said, I've heard of you, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I saw him. He's alive. And Jesus appeared to him over and over again and, and dispatched the message and the mission that he had sent him upon. He says, I have seen him personally. He is alive. And I know that. He turned from sin. He turned to God. He trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sin, knowing that he had risen from the dead, that he was the Savior that God had promised. The very words of God had promised one day that all would be raised from the dead, so it wasn't hard for him to believe that even the Savior was raised himself. And then he understood what the Word of God taught about the resurrection and crucifixion of Jesus Christ as all part of God's plan to redeem man. He says, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness. Remember, what is God's command for every person? Repent. Turn from sin and turn to God. The message is to turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Turn from sin to God, from Satan to God. That you become a child of God to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. From darkness to light. From Satan to God. From Satan's family to God's family. This is the message that he was instructed by the Lord Jesus Christ to share with the world. The same message that has been entrusted to you and I that every person would repent and to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. For if he is not your Savior, he will be your judge. After? Notice what he says. Consequently, I didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring to both of those of Damascus first in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. You know what that means? That means if you have repented from sin and you have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, believing in his death for you and the power of his resurrection for you, you know what a deeds appropriate to repentance means? It means that if you genuinely have come to faith in Christ, you will live a life that is different than the one that you lived when you were separated from God in sin. It has, it has nothing to do with, this won't save you from God's judgment. It just means that if you're really born again, a child of God, you will live differently. You will walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Your life will be different. It will be evident. It will be obvious, not only to you, but those around you. When people tell me they've trusted in Christ and they continue to live in their sins, either there is an ignorance of God, either they're not born again, or they haven't been taught the Word of God, or the Spirit of God has convicted them and they have denied the conviction to the point where their conscience has become seared or branded in their sin, you better examine a person who claims to be a believer but lives like an unbeliever. In fact, the Word of God says you better examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith. Because the Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit and my spirit that we're truly children of God. If you're not sure, then you need to get right with God. You need to turn from sin. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him as your Lord and Savior, that He died for your sins, that He rose from the dead, and accept Him as your Savior. You know what, Felix? Unfortunately, we'll talk in a second about this, but the point that, that Paul is making is this. He's saying, consequently, I didn't prove disobedient. What would you have done? That's what he's saying. What would you have done? If this happened to you, Agrippa, what would you have done? Would you not have been obedient to the calling of the God who has called you to be a servant of his? And notice what he says. He says that Festus, 
in verse 25 said, Man, dude, you are out of your mind. Praise God. Let me tell you something. It is a beautiful thing for non-believers to think you are nuts for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. Because they all want an answer. People want to know, Chuck, what happened to you? I said, I'm telling you what happened to me. You know what? I was convicted of my sin. I was a dirtball. I knew that. I was guilty before God. And I realized that I needed saved from the judgment of God. I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, trusting Him as my Savior. I intellectually understood I was a sinner. Emotionally, I was broken for sin. And volitionally, I surrendered my will to God. It was time that I surrendered to Him. I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. February 16th, 1978. My life has never been the same. And so when I share that, they look and go, no, no, seriously, what happened? I mean, seriously, what happened? I just told you. And so from that day forward, this is where I am going. This is where I'm heading. And I hope that I'm continuing to be more obedient to God. And I hope that as he continues to, he who began a good work in me on February 16th, 1978, isn't done with me yet. And all you are saying, amen, hallelujah, we're waiting for that day. But, but you know, we're moving. Everything's going this direction. You're keeping your eyes on the Lord. You're being obedient. You're following him. Guess what? There are works that are appropriate to repentance. It's beautiful. He says, you're nuts, man. Christians are nuts. In a, yeah. But some more than others. But, but, but notice what Agrippa says. Notice what he says in verse 28. Paul, in a short time, you will, be, you will persuade me to become a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for this one little thing, these chains you put on me. That's sweet. I wish that you would be just as me, a sinner saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how long it's going to take, whether it's today or in a long time, but I pray that you become just as me without these chains because as we come to faith in Christ we are freed from the bondage of sin now we covered a lot of ground now I'll give you that but there's one thing I want to kind of conclude with that's in common with everything we've talked about and that's this number one Paul was always ready to give a defense or answer for the hope that was within him and so must we Paul always saw adversity as a God-ordained opportunity. So must we. The second thing we're reminded of is there are two tragedies are possible for every human being. The first is this, the tragedy of never trembling before God for sin. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Another part of that tragedy is having been convicted of sin but not responding in an appropriate way. Felix trembled under conviction. And you know what he did? He said, come back tomorrow or the next day, or I'll send for you, and we'll talk about it again someday. You know what? Agrippa said the same thing. Go away. Go to Caesar. Go to the emperor. We'll talk about it again someday. Felix, Festus, Agrippa all represent the danger of neglecting to respond affirmatively to God's message at the time of conviction. The foolishness of such procrastination is warned continually through Scripture. And the reasons are twofold. One, though we might hear the same truth again, it might not bring conviction again. If you hear the truth often enough, it becomes diluted to where it loses its edge. We already talked about the conscience that God's given every one of us. When we are convicted of sin, if we ignore that conviction and we continue to live in sin, we are branded and seared in our conscience before God. To procrastinate when convicted of sin and not act upon it is a very dangerous place to be because you never know whether you have another opportunity to respond affirmatively. Repetition dulls truth's potency. Felix was enlightened in his mind. He was troubled in his emotions. But he held tight on his will. And he didn't surrender his will to God. The second thing is truths acted upon 
can harden us, not acted upon, can harden us so that we cannot even understand them. Jesus warned of the Pharisees. They have ears and they can't hear. They have eyes and they can't see. And the reason is because when the truth was presented to them, they had no interest in examining the truth for the truth. They had no interest in examining what Jesus said against the very word of God. And because of that, they became hardened. You go, how many times can these men hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? How many times can they see the, the miracles that he performed, the signs and the wonders that were associated with it? How many times could they see lives being changed? How many times could they hear Paul testifying, Saul of Tarsus, the greatest Pharisee of Pharisees that ever lived, that Jesus Christ changed his life? How many times could they hear it and yet continue to reject it? It's a dangerous place to be. The appropriate response is that of the Philippian jailer who said, as he was convicted of sin, men, what must I do to be saved? Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Dr. Clarence McCartney told a story about a meeting in hell. We'll close with this. Satan called his four leading demons together, commanded them to think up a new lie that would trap more souls. The first demon said, I've got it. He goes, I have it. I'll go to earth and tell people there is no God. Satan said, that's not going to work. All they have to do is look around and see creation and know that God exists. The second said, then I'll go and I'll tell them that there's no heaven. Satan rejected the idea, saying everybody knows there's life after death and everybody wants to go to heaven. The third said, well, then I will go and I'll tell them there's no hell. Satan said, no, conscience tells them their sins will be judged by one day. We need a better lie than that. And the fourth quietly got up before them and spoke and said, I think I've solved your problem. I will go to earth. And I will tell everybody that there is no hurry to act upon the message. The best time to trust Jesus Christ is now. The best time to tell others about Jesus Christ is now. Because we don't know what the appointed day is of our death. And we don't know the appointed day that the Lord Jesus Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Do you know him as your Savior? Are you convicted of your sin? Is he your savior or judge? Trust in him today. Surrender your heart to him in a simple prayer. Father, I'm convicted of my sin and I don't want to be like Felix. Forgive me. I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on my behalf and his resurrection. And I surrender my will to him and I receive him as my Lord and savior this very day. Lord, I don't want to stand before you guilty of sin and judged accordingly. I don't want to spend an eternity separated from you. Your word has convicted me. I've come before you. You tell us that a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will never despise. And God, we just thank you and we praise you and we love you in the wonderful name of Jesus.